0: Hi, this is David Sachs, and welcome to Spiritual Tools for an Outrageous World. Every week we do a little couples therapy between us and God. It's a chance to deepen and explore our most important relationship. Okay, I'm glad you're here. One of the biggest topics in my life for a long time now, and I think it's so important if you really want to have a a vibrant, balanced, healthy, honest relationship with God, And with each other, by the way, is the importance, I I would take it even further, the life-giving, the life-sustaining importance of being in a state of not just knowing, but even more importantly, not knowing. To achieve this enlightened state called not knowing. Now, I want to make sure that you understand what I'm talking about. Because when I say not knowing, it doesn't mean ignorance. We have an obligation to be constantly learning. And when I say not knowing, I'm not endorsing any anti-intellectual approach to life. The opposite. I'm trying to create a frame of mind where someone can constantly be learning. But the problem with quote-unquote, knowing. And in the Torah context, we would put this in the paradigm of tree of knowledge knowing. This type of knowing is a false knowing. It's thinking that you know when you really don't know. And there's a story that Rabbi Nachman tells that I think is quite amazing, which is one of his Hasidim came up to him and said to Rabbi Nachman, I'm concerned that my speech isn't coming from my heart, but rather from the nape of my neck. And Rabbi Nachman responded, what do you know about the nape of the neck and the heart? And to me, that's, first of all, hilarious. (laughs) Second of all, It's hitting at something that I think that we all fall prey to, which is that we confuse familiarity with terminology with actual knowledge about the subject. I'll say that one more time. We confuse familiarity with jargon and terminology with real knowledge of a subject. In other words, we think that we know when we don't even approach knowing. Or in, again, Rebbe Nachman's words, what do you know about the nape of the neck and the heart? The Gomorrah says that a person doesn't understand the teachings of their Rebbe for 40 years. Now, if you think about that, if someone is studious and intellectual and sincere and they're reviewing the words of the Rebbe, how is it possible that it takes 40 years to understand the words of the Rebbe? In other words, if I give you a mathematical calculation, and I say to you, it will take you 40 years to understand this, that doesn't really make any sense. If it's math, and you go over it, and you're familiar with the concepts, then you know it. It doesn't take you 40 years to know it. So from this we see, there's a very big difference between the type of knowledge that one would learn in school, and knowledge about life, knowledge about God, knowledge about one's purpose in this world, knowledge about the higher realms. This type of knowledge is a very different type of knowledge. We call the Torah Torah Chaim, which means the Torah of life. And what this says to me is that the type of knowledge that the Torah is teaching is not just an intellectually based knowledge, but it's a knowledge that one has to acquire quite a bit of experience, real hard-earned life experience, in order to appreciate what the Torah is saying to begin with. That's Torah Chaim, the Torah of life. That's why it takes 40 years to understand the teachings of your Rebbe because it's not purely an intellectual discipline. Reb Shlomo said one time something so beautiful, I always think about it, which is he asked, did you ever see an English professor give a lecture on Shakespeare and then after the class kiss the Shakespeare book? Did you ever see that? Did you ever see a math professor give a lecture on mathematics and then kiss the math textbook? You never saw it, right? There's a reason. But you see a person who is a sincere Torah student kiss the Torah book, whatever they're learning. And by the way, don't just kiss it afterwards. You have to kiss it before you start learning also. You have to open up the gates. You have to open up your heart before you begin learning. This is just one example that the type of Torah learning is not purely intellectual. That we have to bring the entirety of ourselves and our emotions to what we learn as well. So much of life is applying Torah to our emotions. Our emotions are the real battleground in terms of refining ourselves. To simply acquire more and more information is sweet and it's cute but it's not what the Torah is after. As the Gomorrah says, Hashem wants the heart. But we also say that the largest distance in the entire universe is between the head and the heart. That's where the 40 years comes in. That's where the level of integration comes in. Working with the teachings, working with yourself. And now this brings us back to this idea of knowing and not knowing, or knowing and false knowing. You see, there's so many dangers to this quote-unquote type of knowing. One of them is that you shut yourself off from more knowing. Because you say, I already know. (laughs) Has anyone started to explain to you a concept that you... Feel as though you quote-unquote know. And then you're, "Yeah, yeah, I read that. No, 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 I know. I'm familiar with that. You don't even want to hear it because you're so convinced that you know it. I remember I had a big moment many years ago where I was sitting in shul and someone was giving a talk. I don't remember who or what they were talking about, but they got to a point and it was something that I was familiar with. And as many people do, when they got to this point that I was familiar with, I shut down and I stopped listening because I was like, I already know that. And then I asked myself the following question. I said, if they stopped speaking right now, could you walk up there and finish their point? And I realized that I couldn't. And then I said to myself, you didn't hear it the first time. And now you're also not going to hear it this time? (laughs) You're being given the opportunity to actually hear it the first time. Rab Noach Weinberg, the founder of Esha Torah, Alevah Shalom, used to tell his students, know what you know. So that sounds a little bit repetitive, know what you know. Well, if you know it, of course I know it. So why do I have to know what I already know? So in other words, what he was telling them is, that which you think you know, you don't even know yet. How about actually trying to know what it is you think you already know? In other words, how much in our warehouse of information, if someone asked you, do you know that, you'd say yes. And then if they say, okay, teach it to me, you'd be like, "Uh." (laughs) ah, well, I actually don't remember it. Well, if you don't remember it, guess what? You don't know it. And I'll tell you something else, if you can't give over a piece of information or a teaching in a very clear, concise way, that's a sign that you don't know it. If you know something, it shouldn't take you 10 minutes and rambling on and then you conclude with an apologetic something like that. (laughs) That means you don't know it. Now it's very, very important especially with deeper ideas, that you go over these ideas in your head and that you explain them to yourselves. I don't know how it is given the fact that I really did not grow up with a Torah education at all that I'm giving these talks. I'm not sure how that happened exactly. But I can tell you one extremely important way it did happen. And that is when I would learn things When I was by myself, I would ask myself, what does that mean? And then I would try to explain it to myself. And then I found that my explanations to myself were things that I wanted to share with other people. But everything started with me explaining things to myself so that I could understand it. In other words, if you think that the process of learning is you sit down or you open up a book and you hear something, and now I quote unquote know it, you're deluding yourself. Right? Can I ask you something? If you go into a supermarket, have you finished your shopping? (laughs) I walked into the. Can you imagine walking into a supermarket and then turning around and then walking back to your car and driving home? And your wife or your husband or your child or your friend says, did you do the shopping? And you go, yeah. And they say, where are all the groceries? Oh. (laughs) Learning, you have to take things off the shelf and put them in your basket. And then you have to pay for them. Shopping is just not walking into the store. There's a process. The process of learning is hearing something and then going over it and then explaining it to yourself. Until you've done that, you haven't completed the process. So many people think these are bonuses. These are not bonuses. What I'm telling you is the basic process of learning anything. Now, I want to go deeper. We have a a phenomenal story in Parshas Pinchas, which is the daughters of Savchad knew something that Moshe Rabbeinu didn't know. Now, that in itself is phenomenal. How do you know something that Moshe didn't know? Well, one explanation is that they arrived at it through a uniquely feminine attribute called Bina. Bina is a level of intuitive understanding that women have that men don't have. Now, men do have Bina, but women have something called Bina Yaserah. Women have this extra dimension of this intuitive thought. Over the years, I've noticed that when I ask the rabbi that I learned with in the mornings certain questions, oftentimes he says to me, ask your wife. This past week, he explained why he says that. He said, what you're asking me right now is not a halachic question. It's not a question in Jewish law. It's a question in advice. And women have more bina than men. And therefore, it's appropriate to ask your wife this question. She's going to give you a better answer. So throughout the Torah, small letters and large letters. I saw a teaching, I haven't actually gone through all of Tanakh to confirm this, but it was very striking when I read it, that when we're talking about not just the five books right now, we're talking about the the 24 books of the Torah, that throughout Tanakh, there is an example of one small version of every letter and one large version of every letter. That in itself is very striking. So in this week's Parsha, by the daughters of Slothchad, The ones who understood something that Moshe didn't understand, what what was it that they understood? Well, they came from a family with four daughters and no boys. And so right now, the Jewish people are getting very close to entering into the land of Israel. And now we have the division of the land according to the tribes. And just for all of you Harry Potter fans of... (laughs) There's something in Harry Potter that's directly from the Torah, which is they had in Harry Potter like different houses that the the students at, at Hogwarts would go into and each house had a very distinct personality. And the way that you would know which house that you were supposed to go to is there was something called the sorting hat and you would reach into this hat and it would give you the assignment of what house you're supposed to go to. Well, I don't know if she was familiar with the Medrash, but this exact thing happened thousands of years ago when the Jewish people entered into the land of Israel. There were, each tribe was assigned a different part of Israel. And that was done by reaching into this lottery bag and pulling out these lots that would assign them exactly where they were supposed to go. So that's, that's an interesting thing. So now the land is about to be divided up. And as far as we know at this point, according to the Torah, inheritance goes to the males, not to the females. As far as we know, that's going to turn out not to be the case. And so the daughters of Slavchad, who were both wise and righteous said amongst themselves, well, is it right that we shouldn't get a share in the land? And they actually said a little bit more. They said, to perpetuate our father's name. So it was very, very righteous. It wasn't just a, a land grab. They, they really had a very high holy kavana, And they asked Moshe, and Moshe says, I don't know. He says, let me ask God. So this brings us back to the large final Nun in the Torah. Nun is the number 50, and there are 50 levels of Bina. So the 50th level of Bina would be the highest, highest level. So according to Rabbi Moshe Wolfson Schlita, this is why the large letter Nun appears in the account of Slavchad's daughters, because they possessed the 50th and highest level of Bina. And that's how they were able to intuitively understand something that Moshe Rabbeinu didn't know yet. There is a visual that's been running from last Parsha into this Parsha, which is last week's Parsha, we have Moshe hitting the rock with a staff. So that's a long straight line, that's his staff. Then we have the spear of Pinchas, which is a long, straight line. And then we have the final nun of Slavchad's daughters, which is a long, straight line. <laughs> that's, that's what to do with that teaching. My, my daughter Talia had something very beautiful. She said that all of them are pointing to God. In each instance, it's pointing to God, which I thought was a very nice way of understanding and putting all those things together. So the first thing that you see here is that Moshe himself doesn't know things. <laughs> we think of Moshe as knowing absolutely everything. And in, in some way, we, we, we say that he does. And let me just tell you a, something that the Rambam brings down. Very important piece of information, I think, which is that Moshe Rabenu Moses, is the greatest prophet ever of the Jewish people and will remain for all time the greatest prophet of the Jewish people, including Mashiach. Mashiach will not be a greater prophet than Moshe Rabbeinu was. The Rambam brings us. As Reb Shlomo added, Mashiach will be greater in other things, but not in prophecy. The clearest, clearest prophecy ever is from Moshe Rabbeinu. Period, end. Period, end. And if anything contradicts the prophecy of Moshe Rabbeinu, it's wrong. We we have something called ultimate truth. In today's society, people are very afraid to, to acknowledge that something can be objectively true and that something can be objectively false. We live in a society... And by the way, this this approach has its benefits, but at the expense of truth, where we want to accommodate other people's opinion. Now, it's very important to have shalom, to have peace and to have mutual respect and to have love between people. But we have to keep in mind that there aren't 10 different things that are simultaneously true. There's an ultimate truth. That's the existence of Hashem, and that's the Torah. Another name of the Torah is Torat Emet, the Torah of truth. Now, the beauty of personal refinement is to be able to live a life of Torat Emet without using it as a club to hit other people over the head with. The example that I always like to give I remember many, many years ago we had a, a couple over Friday night. It was a, a Jewish man; his his wife was not Jewish. Lovely person, and it came time for washing our hands before eating challah, and you know, neither of them were familiar with that with that ritual, and so I I took him aside since I knew him he was my friend, took him aside I told him to take off his ring and then to wash his hands and everything like this. And then we, re- we returned back to the table, and he saw that his wife had washed with her ring on, because I guess she, you know, no one had mentioned that to her. And he turned to her with great pride and said, you didn't take your ring off? Now this person knew one thing, and he was already using it to club his wife over the head with. <laughs> It's it's amazing. Now, I'll tell you something from the Gomorrah that I love. Listen to this. I love this because this was said at least 2,000 years ago. And the simplicity of this example, and yet the fact that it's 100% current today, and that it communicates something so deep. You ready? They say that if you pick up like a charity box, if there's one coin in it and you rattle around the box, it makes a big noise. In other words, there's basically nothing in it and it makes a very big noise. And the sages of the Gomorrah say, how many people know basically nothing? They got one thing in their head, but they rattle it around like they know everything. (laughs) Well, think about how current and how on point that is and how in terms of the sort of like the 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 technology of that metaphor it's so absolutely ancient and yet somehow it's still totally current and pure just from a just from a communication standpoint that's just so beautiful okay so we've got large letters in the Torah and we've got small letters in the Torah now, we've got a large final nun, and it's in the section of Slavchad's daughters. Now, there are 50 levels to Bina, and the letter nun is the number 50. And it's the large letter nun, and it's actually in the five books. That appears in the five books, in the Chumash, in this parsha about Slavchad's daughters. Bless you. So Rabbi Moshe Wolfson Shlita says that this is hinting at the fact that Slavchad's daughters, through their attribute of Bina Yesera, this extra intuitive quality that women have, that that's why we have that large Nun, which is 50, meaning to say that they had really reached the heights of this special attribute. And that's how they were able to know something, that Moshe Rabbeinu himself didn't know. So we say that Moshe is absolutely the height of knowing, and yet here we see Moshe not knowing. And so this is a very practical example of what I'm trying to tell you. The ultimate in knowing, no one is ever going to know more than Moshe ever, including Mashiach. The ultimate in knowing has as part of his knowing, not knowing. Because that continues to keep himself open to more knowing. Once you quote unquote know, you put a ceiling above your head and you block further knowing. If Moshe is the ultimate in knowing, he also has to have as as a component to his knowing, not knowing. And here you see an example of that. Now, rabbis like to compare this episode of Moshe Not Knowing and Asking God to a similar event, and I want to compare the two and draw some more lessons from it. That similar event is when the Jews, it happens earlier in the Torah, when the Jews were traveling through the desert, and they were getting ready to bring the Korban Pesach, the Passover offering, The problem is, is that there were people who were carrying certain bones, and it's it's a question of whose bones these were. Were they the bones of Nadav and Avihu, the sons of Aaron who died in the Mishkan, in the tabernacle, and they were fished out, and the people who fished them out came into contact with the body and therefore became ritually impure, and therefore could not bring the Passover offering, the Korban Pesach, one of the... Major, we don't have a base of migdash today, but one of the absolute major moments in the life of a Jew is to bring the Passover offering. That's your membership dues to being a Jew, basically. It's, 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 and, and to not bring it, there's the, 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 the penalty of being of chorus that one's soul is cut off. So just to give you a, an example of how important a mitzvah that was. There's another opinion, that the people who got Tamei this, Mase, this contact with the dead, they were carrying the bones of Yosef. They were carrying this ark with the bones of Yosef because, remember, Yosef makes the Jewish people swear that when they leave Egypt, they should take his bones with them. And something so beautiful about that because when Yaakov Avinu dies... He makes Yosef, who's still alive and who's, you know, running Egypt. He makes him swear that when I die, you'll take me out of Egypt right away and bury me in Moros Hamach Pela, the cave of the patriarchs, which the Zohar says is the entrance to the Garden of Eden, where Adam and Eve and Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Rebekah and Yaakov and Leah and the head of Asav are buried. And Yosef does what what his father asks. In other words, look at the contrast. Yaakov, as soon as he died, he said, get me out of (laughs) here. Yosef takes the other approach. He says, I'm staying here till all of you leave. And if you think about it, it's, it's, it's amazing because Yosef, during his lifetime, I heard this from Reb Shlomo, such a, I mean, it's kind of like a heartbreaking, heartbreaking piece of information. That during Yosef's lifetime, he was the only Jew in exile. Can you imagine there was a period of time where there was only one Jew in exile? And that was Yosef. And so this person, who Reb Shlomo says, gives to this very day, all of us, the power and the ability to remain Jews in exile comes from Yosef. Yosef says, "I'm staying with you until you leave. But when you go, take me." I'll tell you something also very interesting. Yosef is the gematria Zion, which is basically another name for Jerusalem. That interesting. In other words, this one Jew, when he was outside of Israel, look how connected he was to Israel, to Tzion, Zion. His very name is the number Zion. You know, I didn't know that, that Yosef and, 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 and Zion were the same gamachia. I learned that. But, but, but years before I learned that, I remember telling my wife, you know what would be a good name for a child? Yosef Zion." I didn't know. I didn't know. So Yosef Yosef leaves. Yosef leaves with them. And that was the bones of Yosef. And that's what they're carrying, according to the other opinion. And they say to Moshe, we want to bring the Korban Pesach, but we've come into contact with the dead so that we can't, we're, we're not going to get out of our state of ritual impurity in time to bring the Passover offering. But it's not our fault. We were doing a mitzvah. So Moshe says, stand here, I'll ask God. And the rabbis note, look how close Moshe Rabbeinu was with God that he had the confidence to know that he was going to get an answer immediately that he'd be able to tell the people that asked him, stand right here. In other words, you don't tell someone, stand right here if you're going to take a couple of days or weeks to figure out the answer to the person's question. Moshe knew I'm going to get an answer right away. So he, he says, not with any arrogance, God forbid, but just, you know, just stand here, I'll, I'll, I'll get the answer free. So Hashem says, Yeah, they can bring the Korban Pesach. They can bring the Passover offering, but not when everyone else is going to bring it because they're going to be in a state of ritual impurity. One month later, we're going to create this new opportunity. So what was revealed was either something new or something that was always planned, and it just they were the ones who merited to bring it into the world. This idea of Pesach Sheni, which, as Reb Shlomo put it, is the holiday of second chances, the headquarters of second chances. And then he would always say, and who among us doesn't need a second chance? So I want to compare what Slavka, the Daughters of Slavka, did and what these people who asked and opened up this porthole in the calendar to second chances. It occurred to me that one, one comparison is one exists in the realm of time and the other exists in the realm of space. Something new was revealed in the realm of space and something new was revealed in the realm of time. In the realm of space, we learn that women can inherit land. Land is in the category of space. Something opened up for a new place, a new way to exist in the realm of space. And how did it open up? Two ways, through asking and through not knowing. And something new opened up in the realm of time. How did it open up in the realm of time? Because Pesach Sheni all of a sudden becomes this portal on the calendar for people to have a second chance in the realm of time. And how did that happen? Through the agency of asking and not knowing. And so now I want to make it personal. And this is what we've been talking about the entire time. Remember, the person goes up to Rebbe Nachman of Breslov and says, I'm concerned that the words that I'm saying are coming from my heart are not coming from my heart. I'm concerned that the words that I'm saying are not coming from my heart, but from the nape of my neck. And Rebbe Nachman responded, what do you know about the nape of the neck and the heart? (laughs) How many things do we cut ourselves off from in our own lives because we already know what the other person is going to respond. How many places do we not go to in our lives because I already know what's going to happen there? Do you understand how not knowing and how asking allows you to enter places in space and time that if you just quote unquote know, you cut yourself off from? I remember reading an op-ed piece in the New York Times, and I remember when I first read it, I absolutely didn't understand it, and I was actually mad at the article. The article was by Steve Martin, the actor, comedian, writer, art collector, He philosophizes as well, he's an intellectual, playwright, he has a lot of of attributes. Someone was interviewing him at the 92nd Street Y, which is, you know, kind of like a salon in New York. They have gatherings of really the most famous intellectuals there and they have programs and they interview them and things like that, very prestigious venue. Doesn't sound so prestigious, the 92nd Street Y, but nonetheless, it's it's very prestigious. Someone was interviewing him there. And during the conversation, this is what he was writing in the op-ed piece. During the conversation, the moderator interrupted the conversation several times with questions from the audience. And the questions were, let's just put it this way, not on the 92nd Street Y level. They were questions like, what's your favorite movie? (laughs) These are People magazine questions. These are not like you're with an intellectual exploring something. When I first read that, I was like, why did he write this piece? And why did they print this piece? Because he, he wasn't happy with the interview? Like, I couldn't understand it. And you know something? This must have been 20 years ago. I haven't stopped thinking about it. He made one more point, and I realized this is actually what he was saying. He said, our conversation, because this was a very skilled interviewer, our conversation was going to go to very interesting, unexplored places. And these interruptions stopped them from going to those places. In other words, conversation is a very mystical process where each person triggers associations in the other person. And things that you didn't imagine that you were going to say a second ago, you begin to say. And now all of a sudden, new perceptions, new revelations, new points become revealed. And he was bemoaning the fact that that didn't get a chance to happen because of the interruptions. Now we have a completely new appreciation for the words of the sages that say, when another person is talking, don't interrupt them. You know, I come from New York, and I once read something that I thought was very, very interesting, a very sharp cultural observation. They say people from the south of the United States, if you interrupt them when they're speaking, they consider it very rude. In New York, if you interrupt something while interrupt someone while they're speaking, they understand that's an expression of interest in what they're saying. That interesting, two completely cultural, different things, the opposite. Like, someone from the South is, why are you interrupting me? I haven't finished what I want to say. In New York, it's sort of like, I'm so interested in what you just said. I want to hear more about that. Or, or wait, you went to that place? I went to that place also. I know exactly what you're talking about. Two very different ways of conversing with someone. But let's go back to the point that the sages are making through the lens of what Steve Martin said. You you interrupt someone at the danger of shutting off an avenue that neither of you have ever gone to before. To not ask a question is to not go to a place that's been opened up to you. You know... I've been repeating this a lot lately, but that's because it's, I just feel it's so absolutely central. Rabbi Shlomo Katz observed something that I saw many, many times, and it's just when he put it so simply and clearly, I was just so amazed that Reb Shlomo would begin all of his teachings with everybody knows. By the way, when Rabbi Shlomo would say everybody knows, Almost nobody knew what he said, what, what he was about to say. By the way, that's, that wasn't just his way of speaking. This is, this is something in the Sfarim Kedoshim, in the holy books. This is a phrase that, that the great rabbis use. Everybody knows. And, and oftentimes, nobody knows. But anyway, he would begin with, everybody knows. And then he would be, end the teaching with, what do we know? And not just, what do we know, it would be, What do we know? In other words, the words would be filled with an emotion that shows you that teaching is not just an intellectual thing, but it's something that really involves your kishkas, your insight, and your intellect, all combined into one. What do we know? You would be brought to a state of the wideness and the awesomeness of God, the infinity of God. And so, so let's, let's make sure we're asking questions. And let's make sure that our knowing is not from a tree of knowledge level, which is a fake knowing. But that our knowing is from a tree of life level. Torah Chayim, a tree of life level where we're going over what we're learning and going over and we're living what we're learning. Because then that's going to sprout new branches and new fruit. Now, one of the scariest Gomorrahs that I ever saw says that in the end of days, those who aren't righteous will be punished and the righteous will be punished. And the Gomorrah like kind of freaks out on the spot and it's like, wait, wait, wait a second. The the righteous are also gonna be punished at the end of days? And the Gomorrah brings a verse and says, yes. And they're like, why would the righteous be punished? And it says, because they didn't rebuke the wicked. And then, standing up for the righteous, the Gomorrah comes back and says, but the wicked were not going to listen. And the Gomorrah comes back and says, but how did they know? <laughs> Again, this is the level of kind of being too smart by half. I'll tell you something. It was, it was a very painful moment in my life. Maybe it won't sound so painful, but it was. But I'm so glad I did it. I was sitting in a kollel, like a very religious kollel, you know, like base medrash. And, you know, I was trying, this was many years ago. My Hebrew to this day is pretty poor. It was even poorer then, but I was really trying to learn something in the Hebrew in this, you know, pretty, you know, kind of advanced book. And I got up to a word or let's just say another word, but a word that I I didn't know. And I had been sort of familiar with this text enough to try to learn it in the Hebrew by myself. But I couldn't understand this sentence without knowing the definition of this Hebrew word. And I was sitting next to a little boy, like, you know, with a black jacket and a white shirt. And I don't know how old he was, maybe eight years old, and maybe I was... 40 years old. I don't know. And I thought to myself, this little boy knows the definition of this word. And then I said to myself, I'm a grown man. Am I going to turn to this little boy and ask him for help in learning? And then, and I remember it was like a a brief, but an intense struggle that I had in terms of battling my own pride. And then I turned to him and I asked him what the definition of that word was. You know, so many of us are so busy trying to be something that we're nothing because we don't allow ourselves to be nothing first. Allow yourself to be nothing first, and then you can become something. Okay, we'll stop here. What follows now are some questions and answers. The written Torah, but where is right. the oratory in relation to the written Torah and Midrash, or do I have it all mixed up? No, no, no. You you don't have it mixed up, and, and let me tell you something that it's, this is very, very important for everybody to know, and I don't think that people know this, for the most part, as much as they should. So it's it's very, very important. People think There there are two aspects to the Torah. There's the written Torah and there's the oral Torah. And they both are part of the same Torah. In fact, you know, it's so funny. I, I was going to talk about what the oral Torah is during this class, and I didn't. And now I'm just remembering what I didn't say that I wanted to say. So I'm going to say it now, and we're going to get into it. There's another time that Moshe Rabenu doesn't know something. He doesn't know how to make the menorah. Now, if you think about that, that kind of makes sense. Because in order for the menorah in the base of Migdash to be made in the Holy Temple, it had to be made out of one solid block of gold. And if you look at the directions of how to make the menorah, there's seven branches A lot of people think there were eight branches because they think of Hanukkah, but just a kind of Jewish literacy aside, the Hanukkah menorah and the menorah that was in the base of Migdash were two different entities. The Hanukkah menorah is technically called a Chanukiah, not a menorah, although we do just casually call it a menorah, but it has eight branches and that's because there were eight days to the holiday. Okay, but the symbol of the Jewish people, which is the menorah, is the menorah that was in the Holy Temple. And that has seven branches standing for the seven days of the week. And the middle branch, of course, stands for Shabbos. Now, the light of the menorah stands for the Torah Shabbal Peh, which is the oral law. And that is the soul of the Torah. And I'm going to explain what what that means in a moment. But I saw someone gave this explanation. Imagine you go to a university class and the professor gives the lecture. Okay? Now imagine the students are taking notes. Now the notes in this example are going to be a fuller fleshing out of what the professor said. And so that was one analogy that was given between the written law and the oral law. But now I'm going to say something much deeper and more far-reaching. Our tradition is that God gave the Torah to Moshe and Mount Sinai letter by letter. So every single letter was dictated by God to Moshe. Then... After Hashem would say, write this down, listen carefully, Hashem then would explain what that passage meant. And he would say to Moshe, don't write that down. Did you hear what I just said? Because that is the oral law. The oral law was given simultaneously with the written law. And the oral law is God's own explanation of the passages. This is why the Jewish people's relationship with the Torah is very different from the non-Jewish world's relationship with the Torah. Because we have God's own explanations of what these passages mean. We have the explanation of the author himself. Now, the oral law eventually gets written down and published and becomes the Mishnah. Now, if you learn Talmud, you see that it's exceedingly complicated, and it was written down for so many generations, you have to wonder how, in honesty, was all of the complexity of all of these discussions understood for so many generations and passed down. And the answer is, they kept copious notes. But these notes were not published. Until Yehuda Hanasi saw during the Roman persecution of the Jews, which was so severe, they were like Nazis, the Romans, that all of this was going to be forgotten. And now we have a rare Pasuk, which is like sort of like unstable nuclear fuel, this verse in, in the Psalms, which says sometimes you have to break the Torah in order to keep the Torah. This is something that can be greatly abused by people if they're not on the level. But it was the head of the Jewish people at a time of crisis who used that passage as permission to write down the oral law. And so Yehuda HaNasi, in his genius, codifies the Mishnah, the oral law, in an ingenious way. Listen very carefully. He writes it so tersely, with so few words, that the only way that it can truly be understood is if you discuss it with another person. (laughs) Do you understand how he was able to write down the oral law and preserve the oral law simultaneously. This was a great act of inspiration, divine inspiration. Okay, well, he wrote it down so tersely that you have to have a discussion to understand what it is. Eventually, those discussions on the Mishnah, explaining the Mishnah, get written down. And guess what that's called? The Gomorrah. And when you have the Gomorrah and the Mishnah together, guess what that's called? That's called the Talmud. That's what the Talmud is. Now, over the generations, remember, the Talmud, if you learn one page a day, it takes you over seven years, approximately seven and a half years to go through the Talmud. The Talmud is a massive, massive, massive treasury of information. And by the way, mostly questions. Isn't that interesting? The Talmud is mostly questions. And I heard something so resonant, which is that if something is true, it's not afraid of questions. How many traditions are there where they say, don't ask because they don't want to be exposed? And look at Judaism on the other side of it. It's relentless questions, and we're not afraid. Why? Because it's true. Okay. Now, as the generations unfold, they want to explain these teachings of the mission of Jewish law, which, again, God gave to Moshe, but they also want to illustrate teachings. And so now more contemporary stories get incorporated into the Talmud and into the Gomorrah. Like, hey, you know what happened to me in the marketplace? Something that happened to me is very consistent with what we learned. So I'm going to bring this story, because what did we say? The Torah is Torah Chayim. You have to experience it in real life. So now the rabbis are going to start bringing in stories in the context of explaining all of these teachings. Okay. Now, some of these things are going to be true, real-life events. Others are going to be what we call midrashim. And now listen very carefully. All midrashim are true. The only question is, what level are they true on? I'll say it again. All midrashim are true. The only question is, what level are they true on? In other words, Some Midrashim are told in the guise, the garment of a fantastical story. Did that fantastical story actually take place? In some cases, yes. In other cases, no. We don't know. However, the rabbis chose that mode of presentation in order to communicate a truth So maybe it's true based on the event itself, bless you. Maybe it's true based on the event itself, or maybe this is just the vehicle through which the rabbis are explaining this teaching in their special style. And these get incorporated into the Talmud also. And so all of these things together, the written law, God's own explanation of the written law to Moshe at Mount Sinai, which is the roots of the oral law, the subsequent generations' explanations of all of these things, all of these things come together to be called, quote-unquote, the Torah. Now, sometimes we make a distinction between what's written and what the rabbis say. But be on guard when people make that distinction. Be very on guard. Because a lot of times people come to make that distinction in order to discredit the rabbis, or to delegitimize their insights, or to try to extract or divorce them from what the Torah is actually saying. And don't do that, because you will rob yourself of the soul of the Torah. You see, the Sefer Yitzira says, let's get back to Moshe not knowing. All of reality can be boiled down into three categories. Olam, Shana, Nefesh. Time, space, and soul. Three categories. And now I'm showing you how Moshe doesn't know in each of the three categories. In the realm of space, with Slavchad's daughters, Inheriting Israel. In the realm of time, with Pesach Sheni, with people who came into contact with the bones of the dead and couldn't bring the Korban Pesach. And in the realm of soul, the oral Torah, which is the menorah, the symbol of the oral Torah is the menorah, which is the soul of the written words themselves. Because that's what explicates what God is communicating. The oral law. And I'll just give you one concrete example, and we'll end with that. It says an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now, if you're just reading it and you go, well, I just read the words and I I don't pay attention to what the rabbis say. Well, to my ears, that sounds like the codification and institutionalization of primitivism. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. I accidentally knocked out your tooth. It was a mistake. And now you're going to hammer out my tooth and call that biblical justice? That's barbarianism. And what do the rabbis explain? That it never meant that to begin with. That here's where we see the laws of workman's compensation. That if someone loses an eye and they're a ditch digger, they're entitled to a certain sum of money. And if someone loses an eye and they're a brain surgeon, well, they're going to lose a lot more money, so they're entitled to a lot more money. In other words, you have to adequately compensate someone from their loss of income based on their profession. Now, when you think of it that way, all of a sudden something goes from barbaric to contemporary inspired law. And that's what it meant the entire time. But we never would have known that without the oral law, without the Torah Shabal Peh. And that's what I mean, that's the soul of the Torah. There's a lot to say on Pinchas, and all I would ask you to do is is just to keep one thing in mind, and everything you know about Pinchas, you can distill it through this one idea. There was not a shred of anger in what he did. A vigilante is someone who acts on his own outside the, the official auspices of the police department or the government. I think maybe that's a fair definition, a vigilante. And the greatness of Pinchas is, number one, he didn't act with anger. Number two, he consulted and asked Moshe Rabbeinu the law before he acted, and was instructed by Moshe, the ultimate authority, to enact the law himself. Now, having said that, when God gives him the covenant of peace, the letter Vav in the word Shalom has a slash mark through it. Now, that's the only instance of a letter that's written in an incomplete form in the entire Torah. And in no less in the word shalom, which is the essence of the blessing that he's getting from God. Now, there are very many interpretations of why would that be a broken vav in shalom. So one opinion is that there was something just too ironic about the fact that He received the covenant of peace through the execution of these two people. Even though, according to Jewish law, they were liable to capital punishment, to the death penalty. So there was nothing extrajudicial about what he was doing at all. But nonetheless, because it wasn't done seemingly in the most peaceful way, therefore the word shalom is written in this incomplete way. However, the Eretzvii, Rav Frumer, the Rosh Hashiva of Chachmei Lublin, says the Torah is black fire and white fire. The black fire is the letters themselves on the Torah scroll. That's the revealed realms, because you can see and read the letters. The white fire is the infinite realms that we can't see with our eyes. And according to the Eretzvii, that little space that looks like an absence of the letter vav is actually white fire being placed within the black fire of the letter vav, which is the complete opposite understanding. That in other words, it's not just peace, but it's this supercharged peace because it's got an element of white fire within the black fire. In other words, He revealed something beyond. That's why the white fire is included in the black fire. And if you think about that, it makes a lot of sense that the rabbis teach, Pinchas zu Eliyahu. Pinchas is Eliyahu. And we know Eliyahu ushers in Mashiach. Eliyahu is this miracle maker, open miracle maker. Thanks for listening. We do this every week, so join in again next Sunday for our new podcast, where we explore the amazingness of life and review us and send in any comments or suggestions. I'd love to hear them.